Chapter 15 of the Armorer's Prentices. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Del de Pinaroles. The Armorer's Prentices by Charlotte M. Young. Chapter 15 Heave Half a Brick at Him. Beginning with a quote. For strangers then did so increase by reason of King Henry's queen, and privileged in many a place to dwell as was in London seen, where tradesmen had small dealing then, and who but strangers bore the bell, which was a grief to Englishmen to see them here in London dwell. Ill May Day by Churchill, a contemporary poet. Time passed on, and Edmund Burgess, who had been sent from York to learn the perfection of his craft, completed his term and returned to his home, much regretted in the dragon court, where his good humour and good sense had generally kept the peace, both within and without. Giles Headley was now the oldest prentice. He was in every way greatly improved, thoroughly accepting his position, and showing himself quite ready both to learn and to work, but he had not the will or the power of avoiding disputes with outsiders, or turning them aside with a merry jest and rivalries and quarrels with the armory at the eagle began to increase. The dragon, no doubt, turned out finer workmanship, and this, the eagle alleged, was wholly owing to nefarious traffic with the old Spanish or Moorish sorcerer in Warwick Inner Yard, a thing unworthy of honest Englishmen. This made Giles furious, and the cry never failed to end in a fight, in which Stephen supported the cause of the one house, and George Bates and his comrade of the other, it was the same with even the archery at Mile End, where the butts were erected, and the youth contended with the longbow, which was still considered as the safeguard of England. King Henry often looked in on these matches, and did honour to the winners. One match there was in especial, on Mothering Sunday, when the champions of each guild shot against one another at such a range that it needed a keen eye to see the popinjay, a stuffed bird at which they shot. Stephen was one of these, his forest lore always having given him an advantage over many of the others. He even was one of the last three who were to finish the sport by shooting against one another. One was a butcher named Barlow. The other was a Walloon, the best shot among 600 foreigners of various nations, all of whom, though with little encouragement, joined in the national sport on these pleasant spring afternoons. The first contest threw out the Walloon, at which there were cries of ecstasy. Now the trial was between Barlow and Stephen, and in this final effort, the distance of the pole to which the popinjay was fastened was so much increased that strength of arm told as much as accuracy of aim, and Stephen's seventeen years old muscles could not, after so long a strain, cope with those of Rar cope with those of Ralph Barlow, a butcher of full thirty years old. His wrist and arm began to shake with weariness and only one of his last three arrows went straight to the mark, while Barlow was as steady as ever, and never once failed. Stephen was bitterly disappointed, his eyes filled with tears, and he flung himself down on the turf, feeling as if the shouts of, A Barlow! A Barlow! which were led by the jovial voice of King Harry himself, were all exulting over him. Barlow was led up to the king, who hailed him King of Shortage, a title borne by the champion archer ever after so long as bowmanship in earnest lasted. A tankard which the king filled with silver pieces was his prize, 
but Henry did not forget number two. "'Where's the other fellow?' he said. "'He was but a stripling, and to my mind his feet was a greater marvel than that of a stalwart fellow like Barlow.' Half a dozen of the spectators, among them the cardinal's jester, hurried in search of Stephen, who was roused from his fit of weariness and disappointment by a shake of the shoulder as his uncle jingled his bells in his ears, and exclaimed, "'How now? Here I own a cousin!' Stephen sat up and stared with angry, astonished eyes, but only met a laugh. "'Ay, ay, tis but striplings and fools that have tears to spend for such as this. Up, boy, do you hear? The other Hal is asking for thee.' And Stephen, hastily brushing away his tears and holding his flat cap in his hand, was marshalled across the mead, hot, shy, and indignant, as the jester mopped and mowed and cut all sorts of antics before him, turning round to observe in an encouraging voice, "'Pluck up a heart, man! One would think Hal was going to cut off that end.' Then, on arriving where the king sat on his horse, here he is, Hal, such as he is, come humbly to crave thy gracious pardon for hitting the mark no better. He'll mend his ways, good my lord, if your grace will pardon him this time. I marry, and that will I, said the king. The spring all bids fair to be king of Shoreditch by the time the other fellow abdicates. How old art thou, my lad? Seventeen, and it please your grace, said Stephen, in the gruff voice of his age. And thy name? Stephen Birkenholt, my liege and he wondered whether he would be recognized, but Henry only said, Methinks I have seen those slow black eyes before, or is it only that the lad is thy very marrow, quipsome one? The witch, returned the jester gravely, while Stephen tingled all over with dismay, may account for the tears the lad was wasting at not having the thews of the fellow double his age. But I envy him not, not I. He'll never have wit for mine office, but will come in second there likewise. I dare be sworn he will, said the king. Here, take this, my good lad, and prank thee in it when thou art out of thy time, and goes a-hunting and epping. It was a handsome belt with broad silver clasp, engraven with the Tudor rose and portcullis, and Stephen bowed low and made his acknowledgments as best he might. He was hailed with rapturous acclamations by his own contemporaries, who held that he had saved the credit of the English prentice world, and insisted on carrying him and thrown on their shoulders back to Cheapside an emulation of the journeymen and all the butcher kind, who were thus bearing home the king of Shoreditch. Shouts, halloos, whistles, every jubilant noise that youth and boyhood could invent, were the triumphant music of Stephen on his surging and uneasy throne, as he was shifted from one bearer to another, when each in turn grew tired of his weight. Just, however, as they were nearing their own neighborhood, a counter-cry broke out. Witchcraft! His arrows are bewitched by the old Spanish sorcerer! Down with dragons and wizards! and a handful of mud came full in the face of the enthroned lad, aimed no doubt by George Bates. There was a yell and a rush of rage, but the enemy was in numbers too small to attempt resistance, and dashed off before their pursuers, only pausing at safe corners to shout Parthian darts of wizards, magic, sorcerers, heretics. There was nothing to be done but to collect again and escort Stephen, who had wiped the mud off his face, to the dragon court where Dennett danced on the steps for joy, and Master Headley, not a little gratified, promised Stephen a supper for a dozen of his particular friends at Armourer's Hall on the ensuing Easter Sunday. Of course Stephen went in search of his brother, all the more eagerly because he was conscious that they had of late drifted apart a good deal. Ambrose was more and more absorbed by the studies to which Lucas Hansen had led him, and took less and less interest in his brother's pursuits. He did indeed come to the Sunday's dinner according to the regular custom, but the moment it was permissible to leave the board he was away with Sybil Steelman to meet friends of Lucas, 
and pursue studies, as if, Stephen thought, he had not enough of books as it was. When Dean Colet preached or catechized in St. Paul's in the afternoon, they both attended and listened, but that good man was in failing health, and his wise discourses were less frequent. Where they were at other times, Stephen did not know, and hardly cared, except that he had a general dislike to, and jealousy of, anything that took his brother's sympathy away from him. Moreover, Ambrose's face was thinner and paler. He had a strange, absorbed look, and often, even when they were together, seemed hardly to attend to what his brother was saying. "'I will make him come,' said Stephen to himself, as he went with swinging gait towards Warwick Inner Yard, where, sure enough, he found Ambrose sitting at the door, frowning over some black letter which looked most uninviting in the eyes of the apprentice, and he fell upon his brother with such half-angry, half-merry reproofs for wasting the fine spring afternoon over such studies. Ambrose looked up with a dreamy smile and greeted his brother, but all the time Stephen was narrating the history of the match, and he did tell the fate of each individual arrow of his own or Barlow's, his eyes were wandering back to the crabbed pages in his hand, and when Stephen impatiently wound up his history with the invitation to supper on Easter Sunday, the reply was, "'Nay, brother, thanks, but that I cannot do.' "'Cannot?' exclaimed Stephen. "'Nay, there are other matters in hand that go deeper.' "'Yea, I know whatever concerns musty books goes deeper with thee than thy brother,' replied Stephen, turning away much mortified. Ambrose's warm nature was awakened. He held his brother by the arm and declared himself anything but indifferent to him, but he owned that he did not love noise and revelry, above all on Sunday. "'Thou art addling thy brains with preachings,' said Stephen. "'Pray heaven they may not a heretic of thee. But thou mightest for once have come to mine own feast.' Ambrose, much perplexed and grieved at thus vexing his brother, declared that he would have done so with all his heart, but that this very Easter Sunday there was coming a friend of Master Hansen's from Holland, who was to tell them much of the teaching in Germany, which was so enlightening men's eyes. Yea, truly, making heretics of them, Mistress Headley saith, returned Stephen. O oh, Ambrose, if thou wilt run after these books and parchments, canst not do it in right fashion among holy monks as of old? Holy monks, repeated Ambrose, holy monks, where be they? Stephen stared at him. Here Uncle Hal talk of monks whom he sees at my Lord Cardinal's table. What holiness is there among them? Men that have vowed to renounce all worldly and carnal things, flaunt like peacocks and revel like swine. My Lord Cardinal with his silver pillars for most of them. He poor and mortified. Tis verily as our uncle say. He plays the least false and shameful part there. Ambrose, Ambrose, thou wilt be distraught, poring over these matters that were never meant for lads like us. Do but come and drive them out for once, with mirth and good fellowship. I tell thee, Stephen, what thou callest mirth and good fellowship, do but drive the pain in deeper. Sin and guilt be everywhere. I seem to see the devils putting foul words on the tongue and ill deeds in the hands of myself and all around me, that they may accuse us before God. No, Stephen, I cannot, cannot come. I must go where I can hear of a better way. Nay, said Stephen, what better way can there be than to be shriven, clean shriven, and then household? As I was ere Lent, and trust to be again on next low Sunday morn. That's enough for a plain lad. He crossed himself reverently. Mine own Lord pardoneth and cometh to me. 
but the two minds one simple and practical the other sensitive and speculative could not move in the same atmosphere and could not understand one another ambrose was in the condition of excitement and bewilderment produced by the first stirrings of the reformation upon enthusiastic minds he had studied the vulgate made something out of the greek testament read all fragments of the fathers that came in his way and also all the controversial tractates latin or dutch that he could meet with and attended many a secret conference between lucas and his friends when men coming from holland or germany communicated accounts of the lectures and sermons of dr martin luther which already were becoming widely known he was wretched under the continual tossings of his mind was the entire existing system a vast delusion blinding the eyes and destroying the souls of those who trusted to it and was the only safety in the one point of faith that luther pressed on all and not all that he had hitherto revered to crumble down to let that alone be upheld whatever he had once loved and honoured at times seemed to him a lie while at others real affection and veneration and dread of sacrilege made him shudder at himself and his own doubts it was his one thought and he passionately sought after all those secret conferences which did but feed the flame that consumed him the elder men who were with him were not thus agitated lucas's convictions had not long been fixed he did not court observation nor do anything unnecessarily to bring persecution on himself but he quietly and secretly acted as an agent in dispersing the lollard books and those of erasmus and lived in the conviction that there would one day be a great crash believing himself to be doing his part by undermining the structure and working on undoubtingly aben ali was not aggressive in fact though he was reckoned among lucas's party because of his abstinence from all cult of saints or images and the persecution he had suffered he did not join in their general opinions and held aloof from their meetings and tibble steelman as has been before said lived two lives and that as foreman at the dragon court being habitual to him and requiring much thought and exertion the speculations of the reformers were to him more like an intellectual relaxation than the business of life he took them as a modern artisan would in this day read his newspaper and attend his club meetings ambrose however had the enthusiastic practicalness of youth on that which he fully believed he must act and what did he fully believe boy as he was scarcely yet eighteen the toils and sports that delighted his brother seemed to him like toys amusing infants on the verge of an abyss and he spent his leisure either in searching the vulgate for something to give him absolute direction or in going in search of preachers for with the stirring of men's minds sermons were becoming more frequent there was much talk just now of the preaching of one dr beale to whom all the tradesmen journeymen and apprentices were resorting even those who were of no special religious tendencies. Ambrose went on Easter Tuesday to hear him preach at St. Mary's Spittal. The place was crowded with artificers, and Beale began by telling them that he had a pitiful bill, meaning a letter, brought to him declaring how aliens and strangers were coming in to inhabit the city and suburbs, to eat the bread from poor fatherless children, and take the living from all artificers and the intercourse from merchants whereby poverty was so much increased that each bewaileth the misery of others. Presently coming to his text, Salem Salai Domini, Terum Autum Dedi Fili Hominis, The heaven of heavens is the Lord's, the earth hath he given to the children of men, 
the doctor inculcated that england was given to englishmen and that as birds would defend their nests so ought englishmen to defend themselves and to hurt and grieve aliens for the commonwealth the corollary a good deal resembled that of hate thine enemy which was foisted by them of the old time upon thou shalt love thy neighbour and the doctor went on upon the text punia pro patria to demonstrate that fighting for one's country meant rising upon and expelling all the strangers who dealt and traded with it many of these foreigners were from the hans towns which had special commercial privileges there were also numerous venetians and genoese french and spaniards the last of whom were above all the objects of dislike their imports of silk cloth of gold stamped letter wine and oil and their superior skill in many handicrafts had put english wares out of fashion and their exports of wool tin and lead excited equal jealousy which dr beale instigated as was well known by a broker named john lincoln was thus stirring up into fierce passion his sermon was talked of all over london blacker looks than ever were directed at the aliens stones and dirt were thrown at them and even ambrose as he walked along the street was reviled as the dutchkin's knave the insults became each day more daring and outrageous george bates and a skinner's apprentice named studley were caught in the act of tripping up a portly old flanderkin and forthwith sent to newgate and there were other arrests which did but inflame the smouldering rage of the mob some of the wealthier foreigners taking warning by this sign the danger left the city for there could be no doubt that the whole of london and the suburbs were in a combustible condition of discontent needing only a spark to set it alight it was just about this time that a disreputable clerk a lewd priest as hal calls him a hanger-on of the house of howard was guilty of an insult to a citizen's wife as she was quietly walking home to the chief her husband and brother who were nearer at hand than he guessed avenged the outrage with such good will that this disgrace to the priesthood was left dead on the ground when such things happened and discourses like fields were heard it was not surprising that ambrose's faith in the clergy as guides received severe shocks End of chapter fifteen recording by adele de pinaroles